Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm Damien Fantato, digital editor of FT Advisor. This week, we've published the latest edition of our FT Advisor Top 100 Financial Advisors, which ranks uh, firms in the UK based on metrics such as flows, assets, number of advisors, retention, whether they're chartered or accredited. The resulting list sees some of the UK's big national firms rub shoulders with smaller regional ones. So today we're going to talk to two firms which are close to the summit of this year's top 100 to find out how they found 2020, which was a bit of a strange year all in all, what they've been doing to keep growing despite the coronavirus pandemic, and what they plan to do next. Joining me are Henry Den, Head of Financial Planning at Punta Southall, and Scott Stevens, Head of Recruitment and Acquisitions at Quilter Financial Planning. Hello both. Hi, Damien. So, Scott, let's start with you. Uh, what do you feel are the, are the factors that uh, a financial advice firm would have needed to get through uh, 2020 successfully? Yeah, so for, from my perspective, it probably breaks down into kind of three areas. And that first one has been a watchword, I guess, for financial advisory firms probably for the last 20 years, which is that adaptability to change. In fact, actually, we've got a behavioral economist um, uh, within our business, uh, a guy called Mark Potashio, who actually looks at the behavioral characteristics of successful financial advisors. And the adaptability is kind of right up there because, of course, they've had to cope with regulation change and all those good things that come in. it. So really, I think that the change that we've seen is you know, now having structured meetings online and really embracing that video technology. And whilst I think many of us are kind of dying from it at the moment, but obviously they have really embraced it with their clients. And I think that will continue. Uh, continues to be the, the the progress that we'll make in this space in terms of being more efficient. Um, equally, obviously, you know, these firms have continued to communicate and it would have been very easy to go quiet and all the good firms and, you know, I'm, I'm sure Henry will, 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 will vouch for this as well. Those good firms over communicate at these times of, of, of stress. I think equally leadership is up there. So my number two would be leadership. Are those firms really driving that change and leading from the front? And that last one is how do you amplify and accelerate trust in this virtual world? And as I said, we've got a number of behavioral economists within our business who have really put some great sales aids and critiques together with top tips around how some of our businesses within our ecosystem can really amplify and accelerate trust in this in this virtual world. Mm -hmm. uh, Henry, adaptability seems to be something that uh, uh, advice firms have needed. Obviously, MIFID, RDR, I suppose, is this the, is this the latest uh, thing that advisors have just had to adapt to? I believe so, yes. I mean, obviously, the, there isn't a, a rule book for these type of situations. So um, for us, um, we were fortunate enough to um, have a foresighted IT director who put us all on, on Office 365 um, a little while ago. So moving from an office-based to a home-based environment um, was as simple as picking up a laptop and sticking it under arm and, and heading home. Um, and then in the weeks following it, when it became more obvious it was permanent, um, getting some couriers running around with uh, larger screens and keyboards and, and office chairs. I think in terms of adaptability, um, we, like everyone else, was uh, quite surprised about what was going on. Um, we just did what came naturally to us. Um, so I'd agree with Scott. We, we, we basically picked up the phone and started speaking to our clients because um, the relationships were already built. Um, and for us, it's been about maintaining contact with people at times of uncertainty. And, and really being a friendly and reassuring voice, uh, you know, in the background of all of the, the confusion. In terms of the, the change and the adaptability, I think what really has um, occurred for us is it's allowed us to think of our business differently um, in the last 10 months 
um, than we have probably for the previous 10 years. And one thing that's really changed for us is that geography has distorted. So we're much closer to people who worked in, for example, our Edinburgh office. And we're enabled to do much more collaborative pieces of work um, across offices, mixing teams up. Um, so very recently, we, we met a new client um, in Scotland, and it was a matrimonial case. So one of our matrimonial experts from um, our Guildford office was involved in meeting uh, this new client with one of the investment managers from our Edinburgh office, who's an expert in socially responsible investment, um, and worked perfectly well. The client was delighted. And so geography has shrunk in that respect. Um, but also, uh, I think everyone would agree, um, being in the office, that the social connections with people you're working with has also diminished and artificially recreating those online is somewhat harder. Um, for us, the, um, I'd agree with Scott, uh, meeting online has been fantastic. We're saving a lot of time. Our expenses in terms of mileage is uh, vastly reduced. And in general, clients seem to be very happy uh, to deal with a, a video call meeting. The, the only issues, I think, are for elderly or more vulnerable clients who perhaps struggle with the technology. Um, and it's finding ways of being able to deal with them and to include them, particularly as potentially they're more isolated um, than our other clients, and make sure that we're looking after them. So that, that has been a challenge to us. Mm. Has that been a challenge for you as well, Scott? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but I do think that obviously, you know, for all of the kind of the negative factors that kind of COVID and the pandemic has brought, um, you know, I think that's the number one thing for me is accelerated some of those trends that we were already starting to see in their infancy, particularly around remote advice. And obviously, Henry talked about the efficiencies that can be gained there. You know, he gave a great example of you know, bringing diff different expertise together to the benefit of a client that would usually take somebody a whole day to get there and get back again for, for one meeting. So I do think that's there's a number of good things we can look at in here and learn from. And I do think that's what we can take to take into the future as well. So I do think, uh, you know, that's really accelerated that trend that we'd started to see before. Mm -hmm. We had the added complication of um, we launched a new investment proposition on the 9th of March. So we, we not only had lockdown, but we also had a new investment proposition. So that really challenged us in terms of, um, you know, education. But you know, fortunately, we've got some really good colleagues in terms of training um, and in terms of the technology that we were able to um, get the new investment proposition up and running. Uh, and that's been you know, quite a unifying factor for us. Mm -hmm. And you both expect um, the changes that so you've seen over the past six, seven, gosh, seven months um, to be fundamentally permanent? Yeah, if I jump in there, I, I, I would say absolutely. Um, whilst you, you know, it's hard in that very first meeting with a client um, to do to do it remotely. I think once you've then physically met someone, and I'm sure Henry will agree with this, actually it's been a fairly kind of a seamless transition, water of a duck's back in terms of keeping that relationship going through through video calls. And if I look at our national business as an example, you know, 88% of the advisors that sit within there today actually, you know, are looking to, uh, you know, carry on providing remote advice as we as we progress out of lockdown. So already I've got kind of concrete empirical evidence that these changes that we've seen that were considered temporary, they're going to be here to stay. And particularly in a world where more and more people are looking for advice. And as we all know, the tide is going out on advisors. So, you know, most of the advisors that I know are super, super busy. And obviously this gives us an opportunity to be really efficient with their time. Henry. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think it's, 
it's permanently changed the way that we think about business. But we think that the, the answer is probably going to be a more nuanced one. In that, we are going to choose to see clients and clients are going to choose to see us face to face because we want to, rather than because we feel we have to. And that is, we think that the interpersonal contacts, the, the body language, um, some of that does get lost um, on a video call. Um, and also the focus that one has to put in actually makes work very tiring. I'm sure everyone finds that, um, you know, staring down a sort of small letterbox of a screen. Um, it, it's really quite, quite a tiring and not necessarily natural way of dealing. So for existing clients by necessity, um, and also for convenience, if we're just catching up on an issue, absolutely. But we think the, the, the interpersonal, the very personal service and, and meeting people face to face is going to be important. We have taken on quite a number of new clients over this period, which has been a delight. And we've also moved to electronic forms of paperwork. So, for example, we use DocuSign um, so people don't have to sign paper. And one of, one of our struggles, actually, has been to convince third party providers to also embrace um, these newer forms of technology to make the client experience easy. But what we think we're going to be doing is we think actually offices are going to remain very important. Whether all of us are in five days a week, I think is, is very unlikely, but we think that you know, a physical presence is going to be important going forward. Mm -hmm. and, and Henry, you mentioned uh, taking on new clients there. Mm. Has 2020 been a year where you've simply sought to come out intact on the other side or have you been able to keep your um, growth plans more or less um, in, in yeah, motion? It's a really interesting question. Um, so yes, I mean, we, we are always working towards a growth plan. I mean, we, we're ambitious for our business, we're ambitious for our clients. So the growth plan is there. In fact, we've uh, recently taken on um, a couple of new um, planners um, and that's from, from scratch. Um, so we, we were introduced, interviewed, um, and accepted, and we will be training them um, virtually. But the growth plan um, is, to, you know, is to build the business. And for us, what we're doing is, is we, we would be foolish from a business point of view not to re-forecast um, when the COVID crisis hit to make sure that the business was sustainable um, for you know, obvious financial reasons, but also for our stakeholders. So for the clients that were actually here, for the staff that we are actually able to, you know, to keep going and pay them. Unfortunately, when we did that test um, in March, we actually projected that we, we were okay, we were fine. Um, and obviously as our revenues have picked up, um, as markets have improved, um, that situation has continued. But I would imagine uh, when we get to the end of this year, um, we will probably be about the same position as we were at the end of 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, and what about for you, Scott? Well, you know, you know, Walter had um, uh, been on a big acquisition trail running up to 2020. Obviously, they bought Charles Darby in there, and then obviously most recently they bought Lighthouse. So I think it was really always on our plans to um, have a period of reflection and really make sure those businesses were integrated within obviously our existing our existing ecosystem and, and that really remains our focus you know over 2020 um that being said obviously you know we're absolutely committed to helping all of the advice firms that sit within our network grow and obviously my part we put lots of training materials together we put scripts around interviews we offer free uh, free services in order to recruit advisors 
Um, and, and as a consequence, you know, I've got you know, over 150 different firms in there looking to add advisors into their businesses. So they're absolutely out there looking to grow because they've seen a real uptick in terms of in terms of business. Mm-hmm. Well, Scott, have you been doing um, online recruitment? Has that been working for you? Uh, so we have been doing that in terms of the initial screening process. And obviously some of our member firms then pick up that mantle and uh, and then interview people, obviously, virtually after we've already provided that screen. And uh, again, I, I'm, I'm with you, Henry, which is you do lose something in this kind of, I guess, kind of T2D world as such. So you miss out on some of those nuances. But I think, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And I've seen, obviously, you know, a good deal of movement from advisors, you know, coming into the network, you know, AR firms as a result of them finding a different way to kind of, you know, to recruit people. Um, so, yeah, I, I think they've really embraced that. Um, whilst obviously trying to manage what has been quite difficult circumstances, particularly with regards to, you know, new business generation. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, and what do you think the factors have been that have allowed you, uh, the firms, let's start with you, Scott, I suppose the firms within Quilter, what have been the factors that have allowed them to continue growing during this period? As opposed to just staying afloat. Yeah, well, I, I think the the beauty of our industry, as you know, is if you put lots and lots of hard work in across kind of November, December, January, February, even when we start to get some of that lockdown happening in March, that business is still flowing through. So I think for many of them, they built up this demand really at the back end of uh, of 2019, going into that Q1, and then they desperately needed people to be able to kind of fulfil that, obviously, effectively over kind of May, June, and July. So I do think that a really common factor in there is, were they really busy before? I think the second element um, is really around, uh, have they got a a pipeline of new flows in terms of warm lead generation? For those businesses that have that pipeline of warm lead generation, they can actually attract the very best talent that's out there. And what about for you, Henry? What have been the factors that have have helped you to grow rather than just stay afloat? Um, well, I mentioned that we'd put in place a new proposition, um, and actually the proposition is one of the key attractive features. I mean, I would love to pretend it's they meet us and love us and want to work with us, um, but it's the entire proposition um, that people want to work for. So we, we combined um, a discretionary investment manager, Sigma Investment Management, with Punter Southall Financial Management, PSFM, which is the firm I work for as a, as a financial planner, we merged those two businesses in December 2019. Um, so the new proposition was a result of that. What we were able to do um, was allow the practitioners to say, what is the proposition that we would like to take out to clients rather than impose one upon them and actually involve them saying, well, okay, we've, we've come from an independent background. What, was the, what were the best things that we did as far as that was concerned? But how could we improve it? So we, we had always worked on a panel, but people were you know, naturally reticent about moving to a restricted model. But if one thinks about it objectively, of course, um, a panel is already a form of restriction. And what we were able to do was say, well, how can we take the best of what we have in-house on the investment management services, as well as combine it with the best that's available in the marketplace, that we know and have used as independent advisors, and can we shape that into something which works for our clients? So that has been a key driver for us in terms of operating. And also what we found is that in terms of client retention, where we have mutual clients with our colleagues on the investment management side of things, the service that we can provide 
So we have, you know, if we're doing a bespoke discretionary service, we have an investment manager who can obviously talk to the investment piece. We have a financial planner working as an integrated and dynamic business is extremely powerful and the clients value that. And I think that there's, a, there's an interesting feeling that one is very precious about what one does. But from a client's point of view, they just want people to work collaboratively together to their best aim. And that, that has worked really well for us. Um, and also then saying, but for some clients, it's not appropriate to have discretion. It may be appropriate to have a multi-asset solution. What are the best ones of those available? So proposition is key um, for us. Um, and obviously we're not of the same scale um, as Quilter, um, but we have ambitions. Um, but what we do is, is uh, we want to bring like-minded people into the business. And that's what we're really interested to do. Not just people like us, um, but people who we feel are going to add something and, and challenge us and help us be better. Mm-hmm. And are there Henry, people... Sorry. Henry, just on that, Henry, do you, do you think there's a bit of a misunderstanding between kind of restricted being kind of, you know, bad and, you know, independent being good? Because obviously, you know, for me, that sounds like a pretty efficient way to, to, run, to run your business, getting to that kind of a restricted panel that makes sense. Yes, it is. I mean, I think, you know, I, I can say that with a, a great deal of conviction because I um, have been an independent financial planner up until December last year for 30 years. And what we had to do, one of the key things that we had to do when we restricted the business was effectively sell the concept to ourselves, understand it before we can then explain to our clients why we believe we're still able to do the best job for us. Um, and that was absolutely key, and, it, and it's a journey. But I think that the idea that there's a, there's a particular virtue in independent as opposed to restricted is actually a fallacy. There are good and bad advisors in both environments, and there are good and bad propositions in, in both too. The difficulty is that you've got to tread this really fine line between allowing planners to um, have choice to deliver the right result for their clients. And if one constricts the ability to give advice too greatly, then the planners feel that they're not able to do the right job for the client, and then that that relationship is broken down. So I think actually a good restricted firm is every bit as good as a good independent firm, but what one needs to do is make sure that you are helping people provide a consistent outcome for a client. Because I think too many firms, uh, independent and restricted, um, surrender too much control to planners to allow basically the same individual seeing two different people, you know, potentially from the same office, getting a completely different result. And that can't be right for the client. And, it, and, it, and it's not right for the business, because what we want to be able to do is say everything that we supply is of excellent quality we will make sure all the choices that you've got are equally valid for different circumstances. So for us, it's, you know, we have, for example, um, if a client has no um, opinion about whether they'd like to go for an internally managed service or an externally managed one, our internal one represents our best ideas, is what we're very happy to deliver. But if a client says, well, I, I would like to get some other inputs into that, we're very happy for a client to split the mandate so we will make sure that the external services that we offer dovetail in with what we're doing on a risk-adjusted basis or go entirely external. And that 
basically means that um, the clients don't and aren't concerned about our restricted status. I mean, someone described it's a little bit like going into John Lewis. You know John Lewis have their own tellies, but they also sell Samsung and Sony. But what they've done is they've curated it down to different types of televisions, in this case, for different price points, both their own ones and external. And that, we feel, is really powerful. Um, yeah. You know, the focus is on the client. If we don't offer what they need, then we're very happy to tell them. Okay, interesting. Um, so what, um, what, what do you feel have been the, the, the lessons that you've learned from, um, uh, from 2020 that, will, that you're going to take into 2021 to allow you to continue to, to grow, Scott? Well, I think the pandemic has shown us the real power of digital. And, and so I think there'll be likely a, a renewed effort to invest in more digital solutions as businesses deal with customers on that more remote basis. And I think in turn, this will see more customers actually being dealt with as firms will have more time to, let's say, streamline their practices and therefore see more clients. So I'm hopeful coming out of this that we start to close some of that advice gap that we've seen open up since the advent of RDR. And of course, those different solutions that we sit out there range from obviously both product solutions right the way through to, and Henry referenced it in his talk there, you know, around no needs for wet signatures. I mean, that, that in itself saves kind of hours and hours of both petrol and time um, in terms of going just to get a signature from a client. So I think some of these developments will absolutely now enable us to power ourselves in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Henry? I think for us, it, it's reminded us that the, there are social benefits of being in work with other people um, that we shouldn't lose sight of and we all value. And it's quite interesting, a, a number of us went back into the offices in early September and we found actually we were probably less productive, but we were far happier. And it was the social context, it was the conversations with people you wouldn't ordinarily um, speak to is, is very useful. But I think what, what we have learned, I think Scott's absolutely right, digital is really important. And what it allows us to do is to think about the other 51 weeks of the year that previously we weren't in contact with our clients. So most people work on an annual review cycle um, and think that that's sufficient. But actually, people have um, changes to their financial situation, might need a conversation in between times. And those other 51 weeks are really important. And the digital um, environment that we're now able to work in allows us to do it. But what we have to do, I think, for the benefit of our staff is make sure that there's a separation between work and home life. So for so many people, the commute was a very useful, uh, almost a decompression period. Um, where one could mull over things which happen at work, read the paper, and then, you know, get on with the evening. Nowadays, people are literally um, you know, potentially working in their kitchen or working in their sitting room and living in there, you know, there as well. And that separation, I think, is a key issue. Mental health um, for all of us, I think, is, is one area that we should be focusing on. Um, and if we are going to move to working from home, not everyone has the benefit of a study or a spare room that they can work in. And we need to reflect that, that actually a working environment can be a very useful place for people to go to actually physically separate work from home life. So I think there are some challenges coming in there that we need to acknowledge um, and reflect on. Mm -hmm. And I agree absolutely in there, Henry. You know, I think that you know, the COVID crisis has really accelerated that those thoughts around well-being of advisors. And actually it's, um, you know, at Quilter and and Paul Feeney have been very, very vocal on this, um, really around putting support around all of these different advisors that sit out there. And we had a, 
a big campaign called the Thrive Campaign, where we partnered with a spill which specializes really in workplace mental health support. So we're given lots of free kind of uh, time away uh, with specialists really around this kind of mental health. So I, I totally agree with what you're saying in terms of it's really brought that to the fore. And I think that mixing of, of work and home has, has really stirred that pot that people are finding they're burning the candle at both ends. And that becomes very, very taxing on them. And um, Scott, you mentioned the advice gap. Um, I've heard of a couple of firms that are investigating whether they can, you know, now that they're working more digitally, whether they can do some sort of cheap or free, or free 30 minutes consultation, um, something along those lines to maybe for maybe people who need help with their pension, um, maybe to get allow people to have access to uh, to um, to advice. Um, Henry, do you think that's the sort of thing we're likely to see more, either at maybe your firm or broad, more broadly in the industry? Well, I hope so. I mean, within our group, um, we have another um, financial uh, planning firm called Aspire, um, and their model is absolutely um, about engagement with large amounts of people, um, perhaps those from who are members of company pension schemes, who are able to interface, um, for example, with pensions and ISAs, workplace pensions, um, in a number of ways that suit them. And I think it's it, what's interesting is that when people um, have a conversation with the financial planner, they often say, thank you very much for that advice. And actually what's happened in those, in those sort of introductory sessions is that it's only information that has been given. And what it is, most people require some validation of information in order to make their own decisions on an informed basis, rather than actually require someone to give them regulated advice. From our point of view, we, we, we think very carefully about target markets. So Aspire deal with workplace pensions and they deal with um, you know, people who have, perhaps have lesser amounts to invest. And Punta South of Wealth, we've identified our target market and our target market are, are actually people who have sufficient assets to make it worthwhile for them to pay for regulated advice. So I don't think this is something that we're going to be doing um, as a firm, but, but as a group, absolutely. Um, and we see that benefit. And people um, are absolutely being disintermediated and, and, and they can't um, you know, receive advice in the same way that they could from their banks previously. And I think there is definitely a gap for that. Um, I'm not a huge fan um, of advice driven by algorithms. Um, I think you do need um, some intervention, but I think a lot of people, given better advice and better tools, can actually come to some reasonable decisions themselves. Mm. Scott, is that the sort of thing that we might see from uh, Quilter, or do you think it's more likely to be, something we're likely to see more of across the industry? Um, I think it, it's definitely something we'll see more from across the industry. You know, there's lots and lots of press coverage, including obviously in your own publication, really around people talking about how we're going to service. Uh, low-end customers and, and again Henry's spot on with regards to the moment it is considered advice there's a whole bunch of risk that goes with that for an advisor and it needs to be worth their while in order to obviously spend the hours doing it um, so I do think we need to find a, a different I guess a different way of doing that and often it's kind of what I call a kind of guided architecture and decision trees coming back to some of the really big basic stuff to try and help people just make more informed decisions um, so again, like Henry, I think that um, you know presenting options to people in a very kind of common sense way 
um, I think is the way forward. And we actually completed a, a paper called Advisor Delta, which looked at the difference between having an advisor and not. And so what does the direct investor do? And what we found, actually, the value of an advisor breaks down into three areas, one of which is, is it in the right name, ownership and tax shelter? Then the next one is the investment solutions you get access to. And the last bit is holding the client's hand when things get really, really tough. But that first bit is in the right name, ownership and tax shelter. Actually, I think you can really help people with that through a very simple decision tree. Mm-hmm. And um, looking forward into 2021, uh, how do you envisage uh, your firm changing, growing? What, what, what's, um, what do you think are going to be the main um, changes that you see over the, your firm? Obviously, 2020 was a bit of an unexpected year, so who knows what will happen, but speculate for me a little bit. Uh, Scott. Yeah, so I, I think we'll continue to have, as, as Quilter, that drive for quality. Um, I think, you know, from an, an old intrinsic, um, you know, Quilter really putting their badge and that reputation that goes with that on that has driven a real flight to quality in terms of the quality advisors that we want within our within our ecosystems, both in the national and within the networks. So I think that will continue, uh, obviously, into 2021. And you've seen some of that drive in 2020. Um, I think the second thing which is really interesting for me is really this advent that was considered a little bit that stuck on the side for an advisor around kind of ESG investing. And I think we'll start to see far more of that coming into mainstream products um, and actually clients genuinely challenging advisors around, well, actually, am I a force for good in what I'm investing in? So I do expect there to be lots more conversations around that. And that will also drive, obviously, kind of innovation and greater choice in that space. So over and above, what's your risk appetite? I think you'll also see, you know, am I a force for good with the money that I'm investing? And I expect financial advice to be challenged in in that regard. And I'm sure technology can help in there too. Mm-hmm. And uh, Henry, what do you think as regards your firm? Yeah, I, I think um, there, are, there are clearly, I mean, every sentence is predicated, depends what happens with COVID. Mm. Um, I think what will happen with, with the amount of money that's been pumped in um, by central banks into markets um, and potentially inflationary pressures creeping in. I think what um, planners and investment managers are going to struggle with is to meet their inflation plus targets in terms of portfolio returns. Um, and one of the things that plays into that is we have got to make sure that we justify our role in terms of helping our clients because if the returns that they're getting from their assets are lower, then the fees that we charge them are a proportionately greater amount of their return. So I think we're going to have to work harder um, to make sure that we're delivering value to clients. In terms of the ethical portfolios, I agree, Scott. I mean, for too long, financial planners have um, either not asked at all about any moral, religious or ethical um, ways that people would like to manage money. Um, But if they do, it tends to be a very short conversation. And that's mainly, I think, due to lack of knowledge about what's available. And and the great thing is we're seeing a number of investment houses producing some really innovative um, products and structures and services that we can use. So I I think that is going to be um, a benefit. For us, um, next year and growth is about younger managers coming through, leading their teams um, and helping develop um, the work that we do. Um, and what's, you know, the, the collaborative approach that, that um, our managers bring to the, the fore is really useful. So um, we, we, I mentioned earlier on, we try and employ people who are going to challenge us. Partly what we're looking for is people who are actually better than us 
who are going to lift the company. Scott, Scott, obviously, from a recruitment point of view, that's presumably what you're looking for too. Absolutely. And and, and we what we what basically want to do is yeah, if we all aim to improve, then the, the results that we'll provide for our clients will be better. And then that will feed through to the growth of the business and growth in the assets that we look after. So it's, it's about people. First and foremost, the client. Secondly, um, the staff and the, and the front facing. But also it's, it's, the, um, it's the behind the scenes staff. So it's our administrators and power planners who we try and make excuses to get involved in client relationships so that the clients feel that they've got a team working for them, not just an individual. Um, and that actually makes everyone involved in the process. And, and for the class point of view, I think they, they value it. Okay, well, that seems uh, like a good point to leave it on. Uh, thank you very much, Henry. And uh, thank you very much, Scott, for your time. And join me after the break when I'll be having a chat with some of our reporters about the process of putting together the top 100. Hello and welcome back to the FT Advisor podcast. And as I mentioned before the break, joining me now are Simony Kiriakou, the editor of Financial Advisor, and Rachel Mortimer, a senior reporter on FT Advisor. Hello both. Hello. Hello. So Simony, we've made some changes to the methodology of the uh, top 100 this year. Do you want to start by maybe running us through what exactly those are? Yeah, I think, you know, it's taken quite a, a long time. We, we spent many, many months going over this. But I think it's really important that we have a methodology that best reflects the breadth and depth of the financial advisory community. Um, I think in, in past years, we've tended to focus largely on turnover or assets under management, which has necessarily sort of lent itself better to the larger national firms than to the smaller financial advisory firms. Uh, and I think that the, the change now that we've made to sort of incorporate whether a firm is accredited um, by the CISI or whether it's chartered by the CII, um, to incorporate things like client retention, these, these things are very important. And that has actually shown there's been a big shift in the, um, in the stats as a result. Yeah, I suppose it's, it's um, become a, a measure of not just who's the biggest in the industry, but also who's, but also some elements of quantity as well as quality. Um, so otherwise it's not just, you know, SJP and the big boys and Quilter all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's still Quilter this year as well, isn't it? Yeah, it but, is uh, just Quilter. Cool. But, 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 but the fact is that we've seen a, a shift. Um, so some of the smaller firms, which hadn't perhaps even been given a ranking last year, have suddenly sort of shot up. Um, some firms which have perhaps been in the lower 50s and now in the like the top 50, top 25 even. And I think that's really important because when you start looking qualitatively um, as well as quantitatively at uh, firms um, st statistics and what they do and how well they've kept their clients, these things all show how well a firm is seen by its client. You know, if you've got low client turnover um, and you've got high client retention, you've got clients who are happy with you. You know, we may not be able to actually show quotes from clients saying how wonderful their financial advisor is, but those sort of details give a, a snapshot, uh, as you were, a statistical snapshot of how well a firm is seen by its clients. And loyalty, loyalty cannot be bought. You know, it's, it's, it's earned over a long period of time. And I think that's what we're seeing. We're seeing some of these figures for loyalty, hard work, dedication, um, 
a determination to become either personally or get your firm chartered. These sort of things show that you are serious about your your work, serious about your firm and serious about your clients. Mm -hmm. But also I was thinking this earlier when I was writing about uh, this. Uh, it shows the vibrancy of the of the profession now, doesn't it? Because it's um, the num the average age of the of the firm has now gone down by I think about a decade. There's lots of you've got your big boys in there, obviously, but you've got a you know some medium sized regional um, smaller firms as well in there. So it shows that this is it's not just a, a profession which is made up of the same names that you might always hear about. It's a, it's a much more vibrant yeah. profession than that. Yeah, exactly. And one in which they care about professional standards. Exactly. That was my that was my takeaway anyway. <laughs> um, Rachel, you obviously spend um, a fair bit of time covering the financial advice market. So there have been, um, I suppose this hasn't really been a, a normal year. Um, what have the, been some of the challenges that uh, advisors have had to overcome? Sure. So, I mean, obviously, the, the most obvious one is remote working and, and working from home and having to do it quite quickly as well with, with not that much um, time to prepare. Um, we've seen on the provider side that there's been complaints of phone calls not being picked up and emails not returned. Um, and obviously advisors sort of stuck as the middleman in, in that at a time which is really uncertain anyway. But I must say that the vast majority of people I've spoken to have adapted really, really well to remote working. And it's those advisors who aren't relying on a landline that's stuck in an office that they can't go into um, and were actually sort of on board with the, the more technical approach before the coronavirus hit, um, which have done really well. And I, I know that the PFS is one of many sort of trade um, professional bodies that um, that have said that the advisors have adapted incredibly well to the to remote working. Um, I guess another challenge of that is, is it's been a really worrying and anxious time for a lot of people. Um, and much of that is linked to uh, the economy and people's money. Um, so obviously clients are gonna be worried um, and it's about sort of managing that concern and making sure that, that they make rational decisions. And that really is where advisors come into their own. Um, so whilst obviously this year has been challenging for a lot of people, for a lot of businesses, I have spoken to many people who have said that, you know, this is an opportunity for advisors to sort of prove their worth. And it links back to what Sim was saying earlier about, um, you know, retaining loyal and happy clients that have a good rapport and relationship with their advisors anyway, um, and completely trust their advisors when they say, don't panic. You know, like some have seen this before in, in the 2008 crash as well. Um, so actually, overwhelmingly, it's been it's been quite positive feedback from advisors. Um, you know, I've I've seen a couple of out of offices from advisors where there's almost like a pep talk in the email that automatically gets sent back to you before they reply to what you've actually emailed them, um, just to, to keep their clients calm um, and things like that. So um, yeah, obviously, wor a worrying time and a challenging time, but also not without its opportunities. You do see um, a growth in interest in stuff like behavioural finance and um, um, financial well-being and mm. um, uh, some of the sort of lifestyle planning sort of stuff among financial advisors. And I guess this all plays into this sort of um, emphasis about the fact that it's all very well having a portfolio that um, you know goes you know goes to the moon, but um, yeah, absolutely, yeah. You need to look after your clients as human beings as well. Totally. And we've seen a bigger increase as well in focus on vulnerable clients and the policies surrounding that. Um, obviously, we know that 
um, sort of vulnerability is fluid. There's no um, set list of what makes a person vulnerable, uh, but there is a huge link, as we know, between financial stability as well and and health being the obvious uh, being the obvious one linked to the coronavirus. Um, so we can expect more action on that from the FCA as well. And I think advisors are really starting to sort of double down on on how they implement their own vulnerable policies. Um, with the risk that there are potentially more clients fitting into that category now. Mm -hmm. Sim, uh, Rachel mentioned um, providers a little earlier. You're obviously working on the um, financial advisor service awards at the moment. Obviously, you're not going to give me you're not going to give away anything yet, but uh, <laughs> that's going to be that's that's a that's a big a big theme, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, advisors have been very consistent in their messages about um, what good service looks like and what they've expected from their providers. And it's very clear um, this year, particularly, that uh, service levels among some of the names that we always used to see up there have deteriorated in the advisor's view. And some, again, some smaller firms across the um, various categories have shown exceptional levels of service, which means they may be entering um, the five-star categories for the first time ever. Mm. And this is really important for advisors because they've seen some providers not being able to do turnaround processing times um, very quickly. Some providers have still wanted wet signatures when obviously you're in lockdown, how are you gonna get a wet mm. signature? Um, but other advisors have said they've been really thrilled with the way that some providers immediately moved to put all their CPD training online, um, sent out regular client communications. Um, some providers offered to do all the template letters and, and everything for the 10% portfolio drop to save advisors time. So, so some, some providers have gone over and above, and that's what you want. In a crisis, you want someone there for you who goes over and above to help you, not someone who just uses the crisis as an excuse and says, well, you know, I'm sorry, COVID happened, so we haven't been able to deliver. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally something agree. To, something to look forward to uh, in uh, for next month, then. Something yeah, like just a few weeks now. Just a few, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, and looking forward into 2021, I suppose, um, you know, nobody would have predicted how 2020 would have panned out. So maybe predicting how 2021 will pan out is a bit of a a fool's errand. But um, uh, you were mentioning that Rachel, that there are some trends that some people are already predicting for next year. Yeah, absolutely. I was speaking to an introducer um, not too long ago, and, and they're certainly uh, preparing themselves for an uptick in uh, activity in the mergers and acquisition market. Um, I mean, the big drivers so far in the last few years have been a retiring advisor population and rising regulatory costs, which which are pushing people to, to sort of sell up. And alongside that, you know, I know I've just said it, it's been an opportunity in the last few months during the crisis, but it has been challenging for some firms and uh, perhaps the smaller ones, this this might be the final straw. Um, so there is expected to be a slight increase in, in sort of demand from the buyer and seller side going into next year. However, also speak to plenty of big firms who say there's absolutely still a, a space for smaller advisors in the market. Um, and there is a real sense of, loyalty between advisors and clients and advisors don't really want to leave their clients high and dry switching them over to a new advisor who they're not familiar with if we're expecting more market volatility as well mm -hmm. okay well um plenty to uh, plenty to uh, wonder about for next year who knows what we've uh, what will happen we've already had a pandemic uh I'm sure <laughs> Sure, maybe it'll be the uh, plague of frogs or the plague of locusts. <laughs> I, I, for one, look forward to finding out. <laughs> Simon, you're shaking your head. 
I'm just thinking zombies. And I'm also going to put some money on Trump winning again. Well, there we go. On that note, let's. I will uh, let you uh, let you all get back to your both get back to your work. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Simony and Rachel, and thanks very much for listening. And tune in again next week for the next edition of the FT Advisor Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.